turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks for that introduction, Dr. Bill, and welcome to the show. And special thanks to the Salem Media Network for distributing the program, and to Matt, who is engineering and producing on the other side of the glass. Okay, so this is a show all about stories. It's about people's stories, and that's because there's nothing more powerful than somebody's life. After all, it's what makes the world go round. And uh, you can find more life wisdom, more career advice, entrepreneurial gold, even million-dollar ideas in a $30 book, in a biography, than probably anywhere else in the world. Thomas Carlyle said biography is the only true history. And Emerson maybe went even further when he said there is no history. There's only biography. So that's why we spend time here talking with people about their lives because the stories that they share are just incredibly fascinating, and if you pay attention, endlessly instructive. Cecil B. DeMille, long considered the founding father of film, said the greatest art in the world is the art of storytelling. And for today's program, we're going to be talking with one of the most talented and prolific storytellers and artists of our day. His name is Bob DeMoss, and he's written over 50 books. That's right, 50. He's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Most recently, he's penned Hazel, The Outlaw Mummy, and The Devil in Pew Number 7. He's a novelist, he's a collaborator, a ghostwriter, songwriter, and culture watcher. Bob writes about romance, mystery, business principles, biblical insight, politics, and gives even marriage advice and parenting advice too. But most importantly, he's a believer in Jesus Christ, as well as, an, as well as a husband and a father. And Bob, it is great to have you here inside our Colorado Springs studios. You're visiting with us from Virginia. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Paul. What was your address again to send that check? That was a phenomenal. <laughs> like, I'm thinking, I'm looking around, who is this guy? Hey, listen, for, for two guys who try and put things into words, I'm, I'm not overstating it when I say it's hard to put into words what you've done in your career and how the Lord has blessed you with the gifts and talents that you have. Um, and it's going to be fun to dig into this a little bit yeah. because you often write about other people and a lot of people who read what you write may not know a lot about where you've been. Yeah. In fact, the funny thing is, Paul, as an, as a, when I collaborate with somebody, if the reader thinks the primary person is speaking, then I've done my job. So it's not just, come along and helping somebody write a book, it's truly fading into the background and not getting in the way of, of uh, what comes across. Yeah, yeah, and capturing that voice. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you've, you've, of course, written under your own name, but when you're writing uh, with someone or on behalf of someone, 
that's a total different ball game. You're going to try and capture that person's voice. Yeah, and what what makes it really fun is you know I, I've said, look, I've been old, I've been young, I've been you know married, I've been single, I've written about backpacks, politics, and romance. Um, I've been male, and I've been, and this is tricky these days, <laughs> but I've been four or five females in that, like when I wrote for Point of Grace back in the day. When they were at the top of the charts, I did a um, a devotional for them. And I had to literally mirror the voices of four different women. And so I was asked once by somebody who was interviewing me on the book, well, how do you get like show prep to think like Heather or to think like Shelly? I said, well, I, you know, I don't put a skirt on. So I, you know, I just, I listen to the rhythm of how they speak, their cadence, the, the way in which the, they phrase things. And then I, I try to really think like them which is really a fascinating process because it, it, it requires active listening. Yeah, and yet those people have people come up to them and say, I love your book. Right, and, right. And, you know, that, that's a whole other discussion yeah. regarding the ethics of uh, uh, ghostwriting. Um, but uh, collaboration is, of course, um, you know, your name is alongside a lot of well-known mm-hmm. people from uh, Jerry Jenkins and Tim Timothy LaHaye and... Um, well, Jim Daly, right, the president of Focus, had an opportunity and a privilege to write his first book, Finding Home. And oftentimes people say, well, like of all those 50-some books you've written, like what's at the top of the charts? And I'd say, Finding Home is advised for with the devil in pew number seven. One of those mm. two books is going to take the top prize just depending on, you know, the kind of the mode I'm in. Yeah, well, a lot of people have read both of those books. Well, let, let's start out here. I want to talk about your upbringing, your background. But before we do that... Um, what line as a writer is more difficult for you to write? The first line or the last line? Oh, that's, that is easy to say. I mean, for me, the first line is the hardest. Because by the time you get to the last line, you've got fifty or 80,000 words behind it. So you've, you've been marinating in the story and in the principles. And so you have a lot of clay to work with to land the plane. But when you sit down, you're going to... You look at that blank screen and the little blinking cursor, you know, and it's like, okay, big shot. What are you going to say here? That's going to captivate people's. And then you start feeling very small and very like, oh, there's all these great people out there. And okay, what is Max Lucado? How does he start? What does John Grisham write? You know, what is, you know, you go down the list, Dean Kuhn, Stephen King, you know, it go, and you start to look at how they open. And that's not a bad way to get it at least to prime the pump. But then you have to literally push that all out of the way and think, okay, Lord, what do you want said here? And how might I create intrigue to something that will raise story questions right off the bat? Because you only, I mean, people have a attention span of a goldfish and what the research shows. So, you know, you've got four seconds or six seconds to hook them in. Yeah. So, yes, that first line is the hardest. Okay. Well, I, that doesn't surprise me, and I would agree with everything you just said. I think that is a challenge. It uh, does seem like it's getting easier the older we get, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean it's easy. It just means it's a little a little easier. But what? let's, even backing up a little further, why do you like writing? Well, what, who, what, what, what drew you to this profession? So, I would say, who says I like it? <laughs> I like to have been written. I, I like to have finished the process. And this is where, if you're serious about professional writing, you have to understand and give yourself permission to go through the self-doubt, to go through the moments where you're like, 
I just do not know what needs to happen in this moment. And then maybe go build a swing set or assemble something or put the dishwasher in that you've over and let your subconscious then prime the pump and, and help fill in. But um, where you do love it is in those moments that surprise you. The writing causes you to have an emotional reaction where I, mean, I can just, I can distinctly remember in writing the devil in pew number seven, I was three chapters in and I just had this moment where I just started crying and I thought, well, if it's hitting me, the reader is going to connect. And so that was like a good benchmark, but I would say the love of story and therefore getting into it goes back to my dad. I can picture him sitting. We lived in Philly at the time. Um, Five of us little kids, two feet of snow outside, fireplace roaring, late night blankies, you know, whatever. We're sitting there, and he would be by the fireplace and just start spinning a yarn. He'd just start telling a story. And I'd be staring at the flames, picturing what he was saying. And I thought, man, that's really cool. And then he would also um, write little little poems, little little notes of poetry to either give to us or to my mom. And um, so the rhyming structure, mm-hmm. as a kid, I was attracted to, wow, you can do a lot with words. And so I think all of that primed the pump for me to fall in love with story. And then also the use of words, the playful use of words, you know, the turn of phrases. That's one thing I've actually, surprisingly, along the way, like I never had like writing classes. Um, but somehow I have a natural ability to turn a phrase in, in ways that surprise even me. Yeah. You know, it's like, where did that come from? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And your, your writing is, is pleasurable uh, to the eye as it is to the ear. Mm. And that's that uh, turn the phrase gift that you have. I'm, you talk, I mean, you're very honest about, you know, as writers, we sometimes prefer reading what we wrote. And, and that reminds me of you know, the great odd couple sitcom. There's a great episode. Oscar, the curmudgeon sports yeah. writer, <laughs> yeah. is has like on a book deadline and he's, you know, procrastinating. And Felix is on his case and says, Oscar, you're a writer. You should love to do this. He says, Felix, I don't love to write. I like to read what I've written. You know, and that's exactly <laughs> yeah, what you're saying. OK, so people who are this is Bob DeMoss. I'm Paul Batura. Batura, you've been listening to What a Life Lessons from Legends. Bob, people, many people who are listening will be familiar with your work, so they will recognize that name. But why, if someone's thinking that the the Moss, the Moss, why would I, as a listener who may not know you, why might we know the Damas name? Well, um, for reasons that, you know, um, were part of the Lord's grand design, there are a number of Damases, all part of our extended family who have impacted the culture in a big way. Nancy Lee DeMoss, who is now married, and her last name is DeMoss Walgamuth, married Robert Walgamuth, but Nancy Lee um, started the Revive Our Hearts and, you know, national ministry. Wonderful ministry. Just the gorgeous understanding of Scripture and and how she digs into it. She, um, anyway, she's a hard act to follow. She's sold a bunch of books, and I just love her heart. My... um, Cousin Mark DeMoss, for many years, was on the board of uh, Liberty University, a score our daughter graduated with, uh, Sienna graduated with her master's degree, and um, 
there's a building on campus, the Arthur S. DeMoss uh, uh, Hall, DeMoss Hall, and that Arthur and my dad were brothers. So, you know, people at Liberty are like, wait, DeMoss, you somehow related it? Well, you know, the money's on the other side of the family. So yeah. <laughs> he can strike a check and get a building named after him. But in any case, um, just really committed to education and excellence and teaching and discernment. My dad um, was the president of the Arthur S. DeMoss Foundation, and they produced this um, huge campaign in the 90s called Life, What a Beautiful Choice. And um, they decided to tackle the center of the other side of the pro-life thing. They would call themselves pro-choice. So they captured the meaning of choice. And my dad's like, being a very discerning man, said, how can we pivot with the word choice and give it a life spin? So life, what a beautiful choice, just turned it on its head. And there was a whole secret cloak and dagger aspect of how they got it even on the air and the hostility in Madison Avenue to getting it created. And maybe that's another time. But, but the point being that you know, people could be familiar through some of those. But also when you write a lot of books with, you know, whether it's Tim LaHaye or some other folks, they might have picked one up and said, oh, you know, DeMoss. Yeah. There it is. Well, and people may, we've talked about this, not on the air, but we've talked about how your family um, really is kind of, was on the ground floor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, mm-hmm. launching Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller now. Yep. Tell that story. I mean, that's a, a remarkable uh, connect the dots here for us. Well, I was kind of a self-absorbed, or in the sense of being busy, teenager during those days. So I, I don't have massive memories, but we, we were living in Philly at the time. And I can remember um, my Aunt Nancy had um, one of these gatherings, and Tim Keller was there to... And he's in Philadelphia at, at the time. At time. Yeah. To share and whatever. And then they started, like, growing this thing. And next thing you know, it's like, we need to launch a church. and. And he was very city-centric and felt that the move to New York would be a really important thing to do. And he, I, my memory is that he parked, like, in the arts district or, like, right around the corner from it to help influence culture. And um, I ended up—it's just funny how the Lord works. When I was the associate publisher for Bibles um, at uh, HarperCollins Christian Publishing, I— um, negotiated a deal with folks on Tim Keller's team for the Faith and Work Bible. And it was uh, the idea of com- combining your work life with your faith and not compartmentalize. There's a union there. Um, and they use that heavily in, in the New York area. Yeah. Well, I just, I love the way the Lord uses people, uh, not beyond the plans, beyond the ideas that we have. And here is a a gentleman, uh, you know, whose ministry has influenced so many. I'm sure many in our audience today um, have heard his sermons, have read his books, and it all started over dinners in the Damas home. Mm-hmm. And that kind of that idea that look, we're going to be introducing people to the Lord. They need a church home, and there isn't a really great church home in New York City. So we want you to do it. And uh, the Tim Keller story is a remarkable one. Okay, we're getting way far ahead here. <laughs> Um, you, you alluded to growing up and spending some time in Philly, but that's not where it all began for you. You're a Joysy guy. Yeah, yeah Joysy. I was born down in Joysy, right? <laughs> so tell us about that. What's your earliest memory as a kid in Jersey? 
Well, I do remember getting, we had one of these rusted out swing sets. And I remember you know, back then they had these, I guess they called them a slider. I don't know if they still make them. I don't see them anymore, but it's like a two-person deal. And, you know, you're supposed to sit on either side of it. And if somebody oh, decides. Like a teeter-totter. Not a teeter-totter. No, this one hangs. Oh, I know. Pole, I know. Yeah, I know. Right? We had that in our backyard. Yeah. I remember that. So yeah. for whatever reason, my sister and I are going back, and Becky, we're going back and forth on this deal. And um, I either fell off or she was going too fast. And then, but the thing slid, I slid off the back. It bonks me in the head. And I start getting, you know, get this big gash. And. Yeah, not exactly a fun memory, but you said earliest. Yeah. And it wasn't intentional at all, but it's like, whoa, you know. Um, but I do remember back then, uh, at the same time, I had this little um, record player with a felt turntable, and um, I had some 45s. And I think I'm only five, six years old at the time. And the records were made out of, blue and red and yellow vinyl blue you know and green some were translucent and it'd be like i'm a little teapot you know and whatever all these little kids songs but the the putting a needle on a vinyl record when you're five and the magic of the sound coming mm. through the speaker you're like oh, man, this is really this is cool yeah i wonder if i could make one of these which of course not that age but happened later so but a seed was sown yeah it was in that and our mutual colleague uh, kevin dr kevin lehman talks about memories and he talks about how the reason we remember what we do is because as you're a kid you're trying to figure out life and when something happens that uh, answers a question makes sense of confusion that kind of burns that into your brain and i love the way the lord obviously put that love of music on your heart so you're a kid, you're growing up in Phil and growing up in Jersey, then you eventually relocate to Philly. When did your love of of music, your love of writing, um the spoken word, when did that sort of begin to emerge? Well, I can tell you this. My Aunt Despy, uh Aunt Despy Stereo, she taught me guitar when I was in fifth grade. And I I, I was in the basement and I saw this guitar case. I open it up and there's this really big, like oversized, I, I refer to it as an El Cabong, the old cartoon character guitar, you know, yeah. oh, yeah. do the thinner around here, bonk, you know, and, he, and El Cabong would hit somebody on the head with a guitar. And, but it was like this big honking guitar and it had rusted out strings on it and on. I said, wow, what's that, you know? And so my aunt played and I said, could you teach me a few chords? So at a very young age, you know, I started, learning how to play, and then um, got a little bit more serious as I moved into high school. My dad bought me a Gibson, a red Gibson SG, which I still have to this day. Gorgeous guitar, love it to death. And I started playing a lot of high school bands and talent shows and stuff like that. And then I thought, you know what? Um, what if we were to put it I were to build a recording studio in the basement of our home. And this is as a teenager. I'm a teenager. I'm a t- uh, 11th grader, junior year. So I, I literally get yellow shag carpet stapled to the wall. I put in a sound isolation booth. I decided to put bricks in the wall to help deaden the sound. Put in the um, a control room area, the raised floor to minimize vi- vibration. 
corkboarded the ceiling. My brother John, who was young, and I'm like, hey, we're going to corkboard the ceiling, you know. And he still to this day talks about the torture it was <laughs> to do that because you get all this mastic all over your hands. But so we're building it all out, and then the slanted glass that you you know have in a studio, um, and then you know started learning about XLR cables and direct boxes and all this stuff. And so um, I was sharing that I have this recording to you, and a couple of my buddies at school said, "Well, can we use it?" I said, "Of course." So we brought in all these. Tascam soundboards and reel to reels and two inch tape. And I'm learning how to razor tape back then when you would do an edit. You know, none of it was digital. Digital ha- had not been invented yet. So, um, in the process of doing all that, I'm like, okay, I'm going to record some songs that I've been writing. And they were usually parody or satire, um, political commentary types of songs. And, um, I submitted one of them to a national show that picked it up. <laughs> wow. That was pretty fun. So, I mean, hearing this is a a little convicting for me. I have three, we have three boys and, you know, I'm a little bit of a neat freak. I don't like when kids, you know, turn our garage into a, into a, you know, mechanics haven and, <laughs> uh, you know, putting tools away. Your mom and dad let you explore. They let yeah. you uh, discover and use the gifts and the inclinations you had. I mean, what a gift that was from your mom and dad. 100%. I, to this day, I'm like, I, I would say to them when they were both alive, I'd say, why in the world did you let, um, you know, me, me as a junior in high school who picked up a Sears how to wire, how to do electrical wiring. And I mean, I wired the whole, I mean, the, you know, the codes probably are all mad at me for doing it, but I literally wired the whole room. And I only learned that there was no YouTube channel to go, see how to do it. It was a book you had to read and this wire goes to that and all. And they just gave me the freedom to explore and to do. And they, and there was never a like, Oh no, you really shouldn't do that. It was okay. Well, if anybody can, you can. So they were my biggest cheerleaders and they support. Yeah. And they, they kind of identified what you loved and then they poured into it. Mm -hmm. They made your interests, their interests almost. Oh yeah. yeah. So you're, you find your way to Philly and as a teenager, what's the time no, frame here? I was here? fairly young. I was still, this might have been 65, I was probably seven or eight. Okay. Yeah. So when does the love of writing emerge? Well, I can remember just, again, re- hearing a dad tell stories at that fireplace there and um, some of his poetry and all. I decided to take my, my hand at writing a short story. And so it was like a four page or whatever. And I stapled, you know, the, papers together. And then I announced that I was, I had a store in my bedroom and on my bed, I had the paper, the story, you know, just random stuff like for five cents or whatever. My parents dutifully come up and, Oh, look at this. And Oh, here, I'm going to give you 25 cents for that. Right. And they bought my first story and I don't even know what it was. I don't know what it was about, but it felt pretty cool that someone Gave me 25 cents for those four pages. And um, my real crash course in writing happened years later um, in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I had moved there, and I was sharing an office with a, a newspaper called Expression. It was a regional paper. And Tom and Kathy Hickling, who produced it, said, Bobby D., you're always talking about the pop culture. Now, why don't you write a column for our newspaper? I'm like, I don't, you know, I've, I'll just go for it. 
And so I said, okay. And so my first, I believe my first one, Michael Jackson was huge at the time. People were like worshiping the guy. So I, my headline, not to be provocative, was Michael Jackson is not God. You know, and just talked about his talent and his ability and everything else. But, you know, the command, Ten Commandments talk about you should have no other God before me. So why is it we know more about Michael than we do the Lord? Why is it that we're so invested in a guy like him? So we ended up, I called the, the column the Department of Redundancy Department for things that needed to be said more than once, which is, of course, ultra <laughs> that's <great>. redundant. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So that's the beginning. So that's that was, sort of, that's, that's where, that's, I, and, and the newspaper, yeah. uh, I think I ended up with being the number two go-to spot in the paper when people would get it. And that just compelled me to think, okay, you know, I guess I can write. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. So we're talking with Bob DeMoss. Uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal best-selling author, um, and also um, a songwriter and a musician. Um, he is currently a colleague of mine at Focus on the Family. Um, one of his best books uh, collaborated with Jim Daly, Finding Home. Um, I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Bob, when we come back, I want to talk to you about um, how you helped launch Plugged In, how you continue to write uh, on your own and for other people. Um, there's a lot to dig into there mm. and uh, um, thanks for listening uh, hang on after the break and uh, you won't be disappointed to come back and hear more welcome back I'm Paul Batura this is What a Life Lessons from Legends today we have on the program uh, New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author Bob DeMoss Bob is currently a colleague of mine at Focus on the Family, but he's a writer and he's a creator. And uh, he has played a pivotal role in the uh, creation, the ideation of so many things uh, in culture and also at Focus on the Family. Bob, thanks for hanging on here. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. Well, Bob, we talked about um, your kind of start as a writer. Um, There's a lot in between there. You're kind of like this uh, serial entrepreneur you uh, in college, you even uh, opened up a hoagie shop. Yeah, it was called the Hoagie Hut, and it, that happened. I was at Covenant College on Lookout Mountain, uh, down in the Chattanooga, Tennessee area, and um, I'm up there on a, as a freshman. And you know, you're raised in Philly. I want a good cheesesteak, and I want a good hoagie, whatever. And so I said to my you know roommates and friends in the hall, "Hey, let's go get some hoagies." And they're like, "You can't." So I got a car, whatever. And let's just go. Now, they don't sell them here. I said, wait, are you kidding me? This school has students from 37 northern states that sell hoagies, and there's no, they're going to be here for four or five years. So I, I looked at the opportunity, and I went to the business manager, and I said, the vice president, and I said, hey, um, any chance I could just start like making hoagies out of my dorm room, you know, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday or something? He goes, I'll do you one better. We have this uh, unused kitchen area, and why don't you uh, do that and just give me 10% of your revenues? Okay. So next thing you know, you know, it starts growing and becomes a seven-day-a-week affair, and I employed about 14 students. And when I went to leave, a graduate, I squeezed, uh, squeezed four years into five because um, I was in a, a band at the time. And just I mean, a lot of stuff going and you're, on. And you're making hoagies. And I'm making hoagies. And um, Chattanooga, the Chattanooga Times came up, did a whole, you know, expose, color shoot and all this. I mean, it was fun. 
Um, but I thought, seriously, like, there are no national hoagie chains. Why don't I do that? Of course, you can have a bazillion-dollar idea, but if you don't have any, like, serious backing, like, well, how are you going to pull that off? Meanwhile, there's this tiny little nobody knows, you know, chain called Subway in New York in like one shop in a hole in the wall. And so about the same time I'm doing the Hoagie Hut, they're they're incubating over there. And before long, you know, now you get the Jersey Mike's and you get, you know, um, you know, Jimmy John's and all the rest of them. But at the time, there was no chain. I mean, I went to a local tourist attraction and I was making Hoagies for them to resell. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I could do something like that. But well, anyway, what's that old line of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest of all, what might have been. <laughs> there but, you go. Um, what, I, what I love here, Bob, in terms of themes that are emerging and talking about your life is that you sort of, you have an idea. God puts the Holy Spirit, puts these ideas on your mind. And you don't just kind of ruminate and dream. You actually go and do. I mean, you here you are. You know, you want to create music. So what do you do? You create a studio in your basement. Uh, You want to write. What do you do? You create a paper or you create a story and you sell it out of your room. You you want a hoagie. What do you do? You don't just go buy one from some faraway place. You actually make them there on campus. So this this sort of um, ingenuity and resourcefulness has played well for you. I think it's instructive for everybody who's listening that action needs to follow ideation ideation and that's the thing is not to be afraid of well you know i don't know how to do that well okay today you carry a supercomputer in your pocket i just i can't imagine how different my life would have been back then if i had an iphone in my pocket there was no internet you had to use yellow pages you had to pick up a phone so when talk about music when i wrote a song called video veggie which was um the satirical play on the obsession with video games, which Space Invaders came out, I think, in my senior year in in college. And I was so absorbed with, like, fixated on it. It's like, you'd never seen anything like it, right? Everything else was pinball, you know, mechanical. So here's a digital thing, Pong, Space Invaders, and that was about it. So all that's to say is when you see that and you, you see the obsession and, and how it had to draw on me, Man, I'm turning into a video veggie here. So I wrote this song, and I thought, okay, well, it's great to write a song, but okay, well, I want to do something with it. And there was a nationally syndicated show on 100 stations called The Dr. Demento Show that had a lot of odd parody and off, you know, whatever, um, topic kinds of, of novelty songs, and I, I sent it in. And sure enough, he played it, and then he played it again, and it made his funny five right behind Weird Al Yankovic's My Bologna, which history would show that Weird Al was launched because he was on the Dr. Demento show. Yeah. Now, I didn't get that launch, but hey, it was fun to have a brief appearance. Sure, but okay, (laughs) so you go from that, though. Eventually, you get hired at Focus on the Family, Mm -hmm. and you're working, you kind of, you help launch the Plugged In magazine and the whole youth department at Focus. I mean, you have this passion, and, and a lot of people who are listening to our show benefit from plugged in i mean this is a mm-hmm. one of the it's not a hidden gem but it is one of focus's gems we have all you know if we've got you've got parent you've got kids in the home parents are going to be using this resource mm. what were those early days like so the early days it was it was me and a halftime um you know assistant and um dr dobson called me up to the studio he said bob i'm going to do a re-air of an old 
you know, Hitchcock, and I want you to weigh in. Tell me what's going on in the culture right now, because he knew I had a heart for that. There's a little seven-minute culture update. So I'm talking about, you know, the latest happenings. At the end of it, he just announced, I did not know he was going to do this. He said, so if you want Bob to come and speak at your church or civic group, just write him here at Focus on the Family. And we were living in Pomona. At the, I mean, the office was in Pomona at the time. And sure enough, 3,000 requests, you know, written, because there, again, no internet, flooded the mailroom. And the guy shows up at my door with this, like, huge cart of mail. I'm like, he said, where do you want it? I said, well, what's all that? Uh, people would like you to come and speak. Well, it's not because I was some big dog. It's because the needs were so great. And so I said to my boss, I'm going to need a little help here. <laughs> so we, the correspondence team helped me figure out how to respond to these 3,000-plus letters. We launched a multimedia tour that we took in 300 North American cities and abroad in Germany. And it was called Learn it to Discern? It was called Learn to Discern Help for a Generation at Risk. And so now we're having thousands of people showing up at these events. And I said, well, we've got to to equip them beyond the event. So I said, well, why don't we do this little four-page newsletter, like my bedroom again. Why don't we do a little four-page newsletter called uh, Parental Guidance? Because at the time, you know, Parental Guidance suggested it was like a theme. Okay, we're going to call it Parental Guidance. And um, we started growing that little, you know, my department was starting to grow. We got up to about eight or nine folks. And then right as I um, fell in love with my wife, Letitia, and we were going to get married, I decided that, you know what, I'm way too busy on the road to, to really be focused on my family. So I um, stepped aside, and right as we were doing a refresh of the brand, and we had just changed the naming from uh, Parental Guidance to Plugged In. And to your point, Paul, Plugged In today, I think it's like, the number three go-to spot at Focus on the Family. So it is so neat to see what the team is still doing, educating, equipping, helping people make wise, biblically-based entertainment choices. Yeah, it's got to be so satisfying to see what you started and Mm. to see how it's grown. Um, That uh, time at Focus you know, it was a bit like being on a rocket ship. You know, the the ministry was (laughs) growing. I mean, you're talking about 3,000 invitations the first the first time it's mentioned, you wind up on uh, the Phil Donahue show <laughs> in the in, in the yeah. middle of that yeah. to talk about uh, offensive lyrics that yeah. are becoming mainstream. How did that invitation come about? Well, at the time, there were only two people at Focus who would field media inquiries. That was Dr. Dobson and Paul Hetrick. So I get a, a call from Paul, and he says, hey, Bob, um, the Phil Donahue show has asked for Dr. Dobson to come on and talk about what's happening with two live crew and a lot of the other, you know, unsavory characters at the time. And he says, he's just not going to do it. So, um, but he authorized you to go. I said, wait, you want me to go on the Phil Donahue show? <laughs> like nobody focus does that. And so I'm completely not no media coaching, no nothing. And he said, Oh, and by the way, and Geraldo is also taping at the same time. Um, Donahue will be live and Geraldo will be tape delayed. Geraldo um, Rivera. Geraldo Rivera. Yeah. So, um, okay. I fly out there and, um, I get, you know, the limo treatment, all this stuff. And the way Donahue operates is a bit of a, it likes to stack the deck. And even though he has, he, he likes to be like this fairness guy, his idea of a balanced panel was 
um, five people from the other side, plus Bob and a pro-family lawyer. So, you know, you, you look at this lineup, and before... David, I'm in the, David versus Goliath. It yeah. is. And, and I'm, like, again, I'm not used to any of this. So we're backstage before the event, and I said to the producer, I said, are you, because um, we're going live, are you bleeping? Are you on a delay at all? Because I used to do radio back in Philly when I was younger. So I understand the idea of a delay and a dump to, you know, if uh, someone uses profanity, they could dump it out. Oh, yes, we're watching this show very carefully. And I asked him three times. And I even asked other people. Yes. Well, because you're talking about explicit lyrics on national television. First time it's ever been done. So through the first 20 minutes of the program, Donahue is making these people, you know, from Wendy O. Williams, the Plasmatics, and Mark, uh, Mike Mueller from Suicidal Tendencies. You just go down the list. Like, he says, um, you guys are all like, you know, watching yourself here on TV and Bob DeMoss, well, you went and quoted a line and what you heard was heard by not a few people, right? And he goes through this whole thing and he asks me to apologize for quoting their lyrics. Now, the irony, you just defended them for half the show and now you're asking me to apologize, but they get a free pass. And the irony, of course, is that you simply quoted what kids were being exposed to on a regular basis, uh, radio, um, concerts, That's right. and you're made to be the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. And the thing, Paul, is that the, uh, the studio audience were all adults. And since they said they were going to bleep it, you know, the way those talk shows that are kind of combative type, you know, Jerry Springer type shows, the way it works is whatever the audience's reaction is impacts what the viewer thinks who's winning the argument. Well, up until then, the audience was all on board with them, and I'm this Bible-thumping God con man it, Focus on the family. I'm just, you know. And so when I quoted the one line from Two Live Crews, the nasty as they want to be, there are 226 uses of the F word on an 80-minute album, so a double record. And by the time, I mean, mathematically, you're going to hit one of those words. So when I quoted the line, that F-bomb hit the air. And the guy in the booth who should have been beeping was sleeping or getting a Diet Coke or something. And it went out, and 11 million people heard it. Mm. <laughs> and then... Yeah. That's when Donahue turns around and asks me to apologize. So there's a, obviously this onslaught of uh, publicity over that. I mean, just getting on the show created publicity. Um, then you come back out, you know, you're in New York recording the show. You return to focus on the family. What happens when you get back? It was so neat to see um, literally dozens of focus employees meeting me at the airport. To, with signs and everything, I can still picture it. Just welcome back and way to go, Bob. And I mean, there were a lot of people who were um, cynical, like even Luther Campbell, the lead singer of Two Live Crew, and he's in the elevator with me going down, just the two of us after the show. And he just says, well, I just think I sold another you know, 100,000 records. And I said, Luther, and I knew he had a 12-year-old daughter at the time. And I said, Luther, how would it make you feel if some other kid sexually assaulted your daughter because he got the ideas from your record. Mm. He had nothing to say. Meanwhile, the press said that I swore at Donahue, the AP, the Associated Press. And so when I got back to the office, there were calls flooding the switchboard asking Dr. Dobson to fire me because I had cursed out Donahue instead of actually quoting Donahue. And so 
you know, Tom Minery, vice president of public policy, got on the phone with the AP and just told him, you guys are going to have to correct this story, et cetera, et cetera. And before long, the, the truth came out and the headlines changed and they, they, they pointed out uh, Donahue's hypocrisy. Um, anyway, so, yeah, and Doc called me in the office and he said, let's turn on the mics and just kind of do a recap here. He says, I see a little smoke around your eyes. <laughs> And people wonder why there is cynicism directed towards the press. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, here we are in 2024. This is around, this is in the late 80s. Uh, might have been 90, uh, yeah, I don't know, like uh, 1990, 91, I think. Okay. So, I mean, making the point, of course, you know, in in times like these, it's important, as Paul Harvey used to say, in times like these, it's important to remember there have always been times like these. We're living in tough times. Uh, it has been tough for a long time. You've been on the front lines of the culture war. Um, the voice you've been hearing is Bob DeMoss. He is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of uh, uh, over 50 books. And uh, I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Bob, you you took a, um, a reprieve from your day-to-day ministry work to kind of launch out and to write and to assist other people in writing. Who were some of the household names that you worked with mm. that our audience would recognize? So there's um, a lot of folks would, would know the Duck Dynasty franchise. And I had the privilege of working on uh, with, with Phil Robertson and his son, Al Robertson, who was a pastor for 20 some years, had all this content. So I approached them and I said, what if we were to do a Duck Commander Bible? where we wove your stories into to help illustrate different points. And I, oh, yep, let's go do that, right? And, and, and part of my christening there was it took me on a duck hunt. And at 3 in the morning, face paint, you know, the duck blind whole deal. And they got their entire 26 limit of ducks in like 15 minutes. <laughs> and Phil's like, oh, that's a duck whacking right there. <laughs> And he said, we need to get old Bob back out here. He says, if the Bible does as well as this, I think we're good to go. <laughs> and there's no, there's no cameras running. No. These guys, what we see, I mean, of course, there's there's production elements, but these guys are the real deal. They're totally the real deal. And, and I mean, they're, to this day, I mean, I'll if I'm down there, I'll go make a Greek salad with Miss Kay, who jumps up for joy whenever I do. And, I mean, they're just, they welcome you into the home. And so, so anyway, the, the Robertsons were one. Um, there's um, uh, so when Terry Shivo was starved to death, the lawyer on the case, David Gibbs, uh, I wrote the Terry Shivo story uh, again, something that I was passionate about. Some folks might be familiar with Jansport backpacks, sure. And so I wrote the story with Skip Yow, the, the co-founder of the brand, uh, called "The Hippie Guide to Climbing the Corporate Ladder in Other Mountains." And um, that was a lot of fun to write. Yeah. Um, Wall Street Journal really liked that book. Um, and then just, you know, Tim LaHaye, I did a, a four-book series with him called the Soul, S-O-U-L, Soul Survivors Series. And, you know, when I got that opportunity to work with him, I thought the USS LaHaye had pulled into port, you know, because Left Behind was, like, going nuts at the time. But so sometimes it, sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't, but it's just all part of, hey, it's an opportunity work with these folks. And, um, and I can remember one other one. I'll tell you that my phone rang and I had been listening on the radio when I was doing some construction kinds of projects, um, to a guy named Michael Savage. And I said, well, that guy's pretty intense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the savage nation. Right. And, 
And so um, I get a call about, hey, would you want to work um, collaborating with this guy named Michael Savage? Have you ever heard of him? I said, well, yeah, he's like top three radio show hosts in the country at the times, like Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Michael Savage. And I said, okay, well, sign me up. And, you know, at the time, he didn't know who I was or anything. And he's like, who's this, you know, guy? But, yeah, so we, we slug it through. Like, it was hard. That book went number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And suddenly, I'm Shakespeare. So he hires me to do four other books. So I ended up doing five books with him. So, yeah, I mean, those kinds of opportunities will come around. What, was, what would be something that might surprise us, uh, for those of us who are familiar with Michael Savage, what would surprise uh, from your vantage point behind the scenes? Mm. Um, I would say that he truly feels deeply a love for the country, and he cannot fathom why people would um, like the, the things we're seeing, the anti-Semitism and all this stuff, you know, with Israel and cannot fathom open borders. And that was his whole mantra. It's not a shtick. I it's mean, not he's, a shtick. It, it burdens him. It, it burdens him. And um, there were times where, you know, the emotion that would come out behind, you know, off mic, you know, and I'm, and I'm recording all this for the book. And so those secret basement tapes will not see the light of day. But, you know, I could, you could, if you were to listen to those tapes, you would say, this guy, actually is a very deep thinker. He is incredibly knowledgeable. He had two doctorates. Um, and, and I mean, he would just, he had a love for nutrition. He wrote multiple books on nutrition, and he was an early adopter of collecting plants and so on that are in museums to this day, like the whole, you know, out in Fiji and everything else. And, and, but he was, so he was a very learned person, and he, and he was fascinated with ideas. Later in life, he had a really, and I always wanted to try, my view as a collaborator was to be Jesus to the person I'm working with. And in this case, with Savage, I'm like, I may be the closest Christian that he'll have in his life. And I don't know what God's plan is, but, you know, here's an unsaved Jewish man longing to understand what gives life, the red lights, the green lights, the yellow lights, you know, yeah. and it would be the Ten Commandments. And so we just... Explore some of that together. How has how has working with all of these individuals, collaborating, um, the ministry work you've done? How has it changed you? Um, I would say that in the ways that it would change me is that it it gives me a desire to give others that I meet who are different from me um, a compassion for them. Not a not, I don't start with judgment. You know, Scripture talks about how mercy mercy trumps judgment. So I don't want to ever be in a position of judgment. I can disagree, but my ultimate goal is to make a friend, to bring them over. So I know that there's logic, and you know, like folks like Dr. Savage and others are very logical. And my dad was very logical. You know, he had multiple PhDs as well. And so, you know, to... So like there's this guy at the airport who announces to me that, you know, he has a different sexual persuasion than I do. He just announces it. I'm not even sure why he's doing that. And so I tried to engage him, not out of judgment, but to just, he says, oh, I don't believe in faith. And then it's just like, okay, here's an opportunity to be Christ to him and say, well, let's ask you why. Well, I don't have any use for it. I said, well, friend, you know, in about 20 seconds when they board this airplane, that's an act of faith. 
you're having faith that that pilot doesn't have a death wish because there have been pilots who've crashed planes that, you know, right? He's, he, you could see like panic on his face. Mm. I said, I'm sure he's probably thoroughly vetted, but <laughs> it takes a lot of faith to, it takes faith to sit here with your back leaning against that window. What if that window gave away? You have faith that's going to support your weight. He literally scoots forward. <laughs> and I said, well, the ceiling could fall on you. I mean, it's like you have faith. You don't even realize it. So it takes more faith to live without faith, in my opinion, than it is to just lean into it. Yeah. You know, so hopefully he comes out thinking differently. That, that, yeah. I mean, that ministerial heart, Bob, comes through in your writing. It comes through in your uh, conversations. I mean, you're an encourager. I mean, you're a, a big, big um, cheerleader for those of us who try and take a shot at telling stories and communicating with others and uh, there's a lot of people who owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude for what you've done. Um, Bob, uh, if someone is listening today, they want to get your books. Obviously, Amazon has many of them. You've written so many. Some of them are a little harder to get <laughs> yeah. than others. But how else can people connect with you? So so there's a there's a, um, a saying that um, I'm the, an author of uh, rare books. <laughs> I didn't start you, out you that and me way, both, but, yeah, but right? you, me more than you. Because, uh, yeah. Well, BobDemoss.com has um, a number of, I don't have all the titles I've written, but um, there's a lot of them there. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you for your time. And we've only scratched the surface. I hope you'll come back. I know there's another project that's rolling out next month. Uh, oh, yeah. The Country Faith. Country Faith, uh, Dayspring Publishers are going to be putting that out in, uh, in all across the country. We asked uh, 50-some different country artists, what's the most important verse in the Bible for you and why? And so that's all captured in country faith. Ah, well, that's great. Well, thanks, Bob. I love you, brother. Thank you. Love you too, brother. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life.